I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. On May 8th, President Trump announced that the United States would withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. The Iran deal was one of President Obama's major foreign policy achievements. And today, we are going to discuss the complex history and legal issues surrounding the Iran deal. And joining us are two of America's leading experts on national security law, as well as uh, leading experts on the Iran deal. And we're so thrilled to be able to bring them together to educate all of us about this fascinating question. Jake Sullivan is Martin R. Flug, visiting lecturer-in-law at Yale Law School. He served in the Obama administration as national security advisor to Vice President Joe Biden and director of policy planning at the U.S. State Department. Jamil Jaffer is adjunct professor of law and director of national security law and policy programs at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. Jamil served as the chief counsel and senior advisor for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and was uh, centrally involved in national security and foreign policy issues. Jamil, Jake, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Jake, you helped to negotiate the Iran deal. You were one of it, the James Madison of the Iran deal, uh, if uh, I can be so bold. And if you can uh, tell our audience uh, what the deal was trying to achieve and why uh, President Obama chose to pursue it as an executive order rather than a treaty or a congressional executive agreement. Well, first of all, uh, thank you very much for giving us this opportunity to work through these these difficult and challenging questions, especially at an important moment right after President Trump has uh, taken the United States out of the Iran deal, has walked away from the agreement. The Iran deal uh, was set up to solve a basic problem, which was that the Iranian regime was advancing its nuclear capabilities in ways that the United States and the international community believed would eventually lead it to seek to acquire a nuclear weapon. And the deal was meant to place constraints on the Iranian nuclear program so that it could never actually achieve that outcome. It could never get a bomb. Those constraints involved reducing the amount of uranium that it could enrich, and enriched uranium is one path to getting a bomb, and uh, to disabling the plutonium reactor that it was building, plutonium being the other way to get to a nuclear bomb. And in addition, the agreement basically said, because we don't trust you uh, to follow through on these constraints, we're going to insist on a robust system of monitoring and verification with inspectors on the ground, new technologies, accountancy provisions to make sure that Iran was following all of the terms of this agreement uh, and putting the constraints in place that the deal required. Now, to get Iran to the table to do that and to get them to agree to all of these constraints on their program, uh, the United States and the international community initially set up a global campaign of sanctions to put economic pressure on Iran and then offered sanctions relief to Iran in exchange for it taking all of these steps and accepting this monitoring and verification. That was the purpose of the deal. That was the basic bargain that President Obama announced in the summer of 2015 and what was known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action 
or more colloquially as the Iran deal. Thank you so much for that and for setting us up so well. Jamil, after the Iran deal was passed, Congress passed the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act, and you were a lead architect of that when you were serving in the Senate. Tell us about what the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act was, uh, what it was trying to achieve, and and then whether you believe that the Iran deal, uh, as glossed through the Nuclear Review Act, was a legitimate exercise of President Obama's powers. Sure. So um, the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act was passed by Congress um, by huge bipartisan margins, uh, 98 to 1 in the U.S. Senate and by a substantial bipartisan margin in the House. Um, The way that legislation came about was it became clear um, as the Iran deal uh, came to fruition uh, that the Obama administration didn't intend to submit uh, the agreement to Congress as a treaty, uh, which is the primary methodology by which Uh, the U.S. enters into formalized uh, international agreements. Now, it's true that uh, in the history of the United States, uh, uh, the majority of international agreements between nation states are actually not entered into as treaties, uh, but are some other form of agreement, oftentimes agreements between the leaders of the nations, sometimes, as as you mentioned earlier, as congressional executive agreements, a modified form of agreement. But the formal mechanism uh, and the constitutional mechanism uh, is to is to enter into a treaty by which the president submits an agreement to Congress, uh, to the Senate, I should say, for its uh, advice and consent, uh, and then he ratifies it based on that advice and consent if provided by two-thirds of the Senate. Now, um, when it became clear that President Obama didn't intend to submit the agreement to Congress, Congress was pretty frustrated uh, with that fact uh, in a bipartisan fashion. And in fact, it was even more interesting because it became clear that the administration didn't intend to even show the agreement to Congress uh, and provide the details of what was in the deal uh, to to the Hill. Um, and that, that got people even more uh, concerned. And as a result, uh, Congress got together uh, and agreed upon a legislative path by which Congress could require the administration to submit the deal to Congress um, and could uh, allow Congress to take an up or down vote on the deal uh, to express its views on the deal. Now, to be clear, uh, this did not make the Iran deal a treaty. It did not make the Iran deal anything less than a treaty or anything anything sort of in that middle ground, that congressional executive agreement ground or the like. Uh, it simply allowed Congress to express its views on the treaty and actually to prevent the president from uh, effectuating the treaty if, in fact, Congress was, through the regular legislative process, uh, able to uh, pass a resolution disapproving the treaty and then overcome a presidential veto uh, by a two-thirds margin, uh, by, by sort of by the normal constitutional margins, I should say, um, which of course, I think everyone understood it would not be able to do. So really the effect of the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act was allow Congress to A, get the agreement when it became clear uh, that President Obama didn't intend to submit it, and B, uh, to take a, a, a vote on to express its views uh, on the deal. And that ultimately that's what happened. The Congress did get the deal. It rejected the deal. Now, ultimately Congress didn't take official action on the deal because in the Senate they couldn't get past uh, the 60 vote cloture threshold, um, which is sort of regular order in the Senate uh, the, to end debate. Uh, but it was clear that bipartisan majorities in both houses opposed the deal. The president didn't have the support of the uh, people's representatives uh, in in the House and the Senate. Now, that all being said, that doesn't change the ultimate character of the deal, which is to say uh, there is a uh, there's an ongoing constitutional debate about what it takes for the president to make an international agreement. I think generally most scholars agree that the president has broad authority to make international agreements um, and that the president could make an agreement like this. I think that 
Uh, as a general matter, however, presidents have submitted arms control agreements, which this is a variant of, uh, to Congress uh, as treaties. And that didn't happen here and wasn't intended to happen here. Uh, but I do think that's been the historical tradition. Um, that being said, I do think that the, that the Constitution and most, uh, most uh, scholars recognize the president has broad authority to enter into non-treaty agreements, of which this was a variety. Whether ultimately it had to be a treaty or not doesn't really matter that much because the Congress didn't really have an effective mechanism to force and doesn't have an effective mechanism to force the president to submit this as a treaty. Many thanks for that. So we now have uh, at least three kinds of agreements that are on the table that we're talking about. There are Article II treaties signed by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate, sole executive agreements, and then these congressional executive uh, agreements. Jake, why was it that President Obama chose to pursue this as an executive agreement? Would he have preferred to do it as a treaty or with congressional support if he could have done? And was there any concern about the legality of the deal as passed by executive order or concern that it might be uh, subsequently repealed by uh, President Obama's successor? Well, to begin with, I think President Obama brought a realistic assessment of the likelihood of getting any significant treaty uh, through the Senate in his second term, not just a treaty involving Iran's nuclear program or a treaty involving climate change, uh, like the Paris Climate Agreement, but even something as simple as uh, the UN Convention on Disabilities, on the rights of persons with disabilities, which the president tried to get through the Senate as a treaty. Uh, even had Bob Dole down on the floor of the U.S. Senate imploring his former Republican colleagues to vote for it. And even that treaty, which imposed no legal obligations whatsoever on the United States and basically brought the rest of the world up to America's standards under the Americans with Disabilities Act, couldn't get 67 votes. So for starters, just as a matter of context, uh, I think President Obama and his team had real skepticism that anything that he submitted to the Senate as a treaty that was substantive in nature, that wasn't just a procedural tax treaty or a procedural legal assistance treaty, would not get through. Uh, that we just entered a different phase in terms of the Senate's willingness uh, on a bipartisan two-thirds basis to actually provide advice and consent um, and go ahead and ratify a treaty. So there was that. Secondly, I think from a practical perspective, he looked at the Iran nuclear deal as a politically binding agreement on the United States, not a legally binding agreement. And in fact, had the State Department lawyers scrubbed the agreement to ensure maximum flexibility so that he wasn't making new legal commitments on behalf of the United States in the agreement. The main thing that the United States committed to in the Iran nuclear deal was to give sanctions relief to Iran. And the mechanism for giving sanctions relief was not a new legal commitment by the president that required advice and consent to the Senate. It was an existing authority the president already had that Congress had already given him. And that was the power to waive sanctions at his discretion. So basically what happened was the president said, I have these existing waiver authorities. They're duly enacted in law. I can use them. And the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran deal, merely reflects my intention to go ahead and exercise that authority that Congress has given me. Other than that, the president was careful not to make any additional binding legal commitments that the United States would have to uphold that weren't already in existing U.S. law. So that's sort of the second 
key thing to understand in all of this. And then finally, I think the president's view was that if a subsequent president, a Republican president, decided that they wanted out of the deal, uh, whether or not it was a treaty was not going to be particularly material to their decision because, of course, George W. Bush, when he was president, pulled the United States out of a duly ratified treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile or ABM Treaty, uh, basically saying the president of the United States can go ahead and do that if he wants to. And so had the Iran deal actually been submitted for advice and consent and passed by two-thirds of the Senate, President Donald Trump could just as easily have come along and walked away from it. So the president also did not believe as a practical matter that it was going to put any kind of binding constraint on a future president if uh, he went that route. And uh, the, the final thing that I will add on this is because of the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act that Jamil just described, this, uh, the Iran deal actually falls between, in a way, being a sole executive agreement and a congressional executive agreement. There is a precedent um, for nuclear cooperation agreements, what are called one, two, three agreements, for exactly the kind of procedure that was used here, which is Congress creates a legislative framework where it says the president can go ahead and enter into this agreement as long as we do not pass a resolution disapproving of it. So they set the default in favor of the president's authority. And that's what happened here. The Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act said the president can go right ahead and do an Iran deal as long as he submits it to us and gives us a chance to disapprove it. The president did that. The Congress had a chance to disapprove of it. They didn't. They couldn't muster the votes to disapprove of it because of the filibuster in the Senate. And so in that sense, it is a form of congressional executive agreement, um, albeit of a different kind than some others where the default is set in favor of congressional approval. But I think that gives you a full picture of, of how the president was thinking about this when he was going through the negotiations. And even the very name of the Iran deal, you will not find the word agreement or treaty anywhere in the document. It is called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action to reinforce the fact that it's not imposing new binding legal constraints on the United States that would require the president resorting to the Senate uh, or to the Congress to get the authority that he needed. Fascinating. Thanks so much for that. So, Jamil, uh, Jake just said a bunch of interesting things. First, that it's really hard to get a two-thirds vote for treaty ratification. As a result, presidents are using executive orders rather than treaties. But he said that doesn't really matter because President George W. Bush withdrew from the uh, anti-ballistic missile treaty. And, of, of course, President Carter also uh, withdrew from a Taiwan treaty. Uh, so the difference between treaties and executive orders doesn't matter much. Uh, my question to you is, is this what the framers intended? We have at the Constitution Center a, an early draft of the Constitution from the Committee of Detail, which says the Senate of the United States shall have the power to make treaties. That was August 3rd, 1787. But of course, by the final draft, the president and the Senate are given that power together. Uh, should originalists be happy with the, by the fact that you both seem to believe that President Obama did have the authority to pass the deal without explicit Senate approval? Well, I guess that a few things to say on that. Um, you know, one, I would say that uh, it's not free from doubt that President Obama had uh, the authority to enter into this deal without explicit Senate approval, because I think that everybody, given their druthers, I don't think anything that Jake said disputes this, which is that 
um, that as a general matter, uh, arms control agreements, particularly nuclear arms control agreements, have historically been submitted to the Senate as treaties for their advice and consent and then ratification by the president following that advice and consent if provided. Um, and so the historical precedent um, and the under the traditional or the, the, the longstanding understanding of the term tree in the Constitution encompasses uh, these type of agreements. Uh, this is not a nuclear cooperation agreement, although I agree with Jake that the mechanism looks similar. Uh, in that case, uh, we are agreeing to allow another nation state access to nuclear technology for civilian purposes. Uh, this is about controlling the ability of a of a state that desires to have nuclear weapons or has them um, or has a, has some capabilities and constrain their ability to to uh, utilize that capability, just like with most nuclear arms control uh, agreements. I think this falls squarely within that bailiwick. Now, that being said, um, I think you're right. Jake did say a lot of really interesting things about this agreement. It was politically binding, not legally binding, um, that the president was using his uh, existing statutory waiver authority, which is certainly true. That's how he was implementing it. And of course, he was implementing his national security waiver authority in a way that was wholly unprecedented and in ways that uh, Congress uh, had never uh, anticipated the president might use authority to waive an entire category of sanctions for a long-term period in order to implement an international agreement. Uh, the national security waiver historically had been given by Congress and had been historically utilized uh, in point cases to address uh, small issues, uh, temporary uh, waivers, not long-term, long-standing waivers, although I will agree with Jake that there is no textual limitation on them uh, in that way, but that is the long understanding of how these have been utilized. Um, but I think what's even more interesting is this notion that somehow, uh, because the president couldn't get a treaty through, somehow that exempts him from the process of doing it. Of course, the Constitution doesn't suggest that at all. Uh, the fact that you can't achieve that bipartisan consensus because uh, you haven't reached an agreement that would achieve that kind of uh, consensus, whether it's the, you know, it's the it's the Disabilities Convention or the Law of the Sea Treaty or the Iran nuclear deal, uh, just because you can't get that. And the fact that, in fact, we did we did ratify a number of tax treaties proves that Congress can ratify treaties, sorry, provide its advice and consent and then have ratification. Um, but of course, these were ones that just there wasn't a uh, bipartisan consensus of the nature that. Uh, uh, that 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 the uh, framers intended, and at the end of the day, I think the most important thing to to you know say here about this topic is, given that we both agree that this wasn't done as a treaty, and that this wasn't even done as Jake correctly says as an agreement, it was just a plan of action using existing statutory authorities. It means that as a matter of international relations, people shouldn't be surprised uh, that the that it had. Folks felt that it had less of a legal commitment or a, le or a binding commitment. The president felt much much more comfortable walking away. It is a rare exception, uh, which the president does have the authority to abrogate a treaty, but it's a rare exception when the president abrogates a treaty. Uh, we pointed to two examples here. There aren't a ton of them in our history, uh, at least as compared to the number of, of, uh, of, of treaties that we've entered into. And yet when we have these non-binding, uh, non uh, or at least as Jake describes them, non-legally binding agreements, um, that are simple political commitments. It's not surprising when the next president walks away from that political commitment and everyone was sort of on notice. The international community, Iran, uh, was on notice that uh, that there was not political support in the U.S. Senate or the U.S. House. In fact, there was opposition in both bipartisan majorities uh, to this deal. The American People's Representatives did not support the deal. Um, and that if a Republican president had been elected, regardless of it was Donald Trump or anybody, all of them had on the campaign show made clear 
they didn't think the deal was a good deal and they'd likely walk away from it. And um, so nobody should be surprised, the, the international community, the Europeans, the Iranians, uh, that what transpired uh, a, a few weeks ago or a few days ago um, uh, actually, you know, was, was always, it was always in the cards. Uh, fascinating. Jake, do you agree that the Europeans and Americans should not be surprised that a Republican president would walk away from the Iran deal passed by the uh, by his Democratic uh, predecessor? And do you think that there's any doubt about the president's constitutional authority to withdraw from the Iran deal? I don't doubt the president's constitutional legal authority to walk away from the Iran deal. I, I have not heard many objections from either constitutional scholars or for that matter, proponents of the deal to suggest that this was an illegal act. Uh, it's more that it was an unwise act. It was um, a misguided act. It was a mistake of policy, uh, not that it was unlawful for him to do. You know, it's interesting. Um, I agree with Jamil that uh, the contestation over the Iran nuclear deal in the United States certainly uh, sent a message to the world that this deal was not on a totally firm foundation. But on the other hand, it's equally the case that when the United States, uh, in the form of the president of the United States, who is the person charged with carrying out the foreign affairs power, uh, enters into an agreement, says we will do certain things as long as you meet certain conditions, uh, it does create expectations that the United States will continue to follow through on that in good faith. And those expectations are not just about what Iran expected to get out of this, not by a long shot. This was a deal that was done with all of the major world powers and with all most of our most significant allies, our European partners, France, Germany, the United Kingdom, etc. Uh, and for the United States to take a deal that was working as intended, that involved negotiations in good faith with all of those partners with which the counterparty Iran was complying, according to both the U.S. intelligence community and the IAEA, uh, I think the, the international community wouldn't turn around and say, we're shocked, shocked by this, because for the reason Jamil said, the president had been talking for years about ripping up the Iran deal. But I think that they have a, a reasonable objection that the United States acting in this manner uh, when a deal is being implemented uh, by all parties, according to its terms, um, is, you know, they, they have a reasonable objection to make. And frankly, their position is we're going to try to go on with this thing if we can, because we disagree with the United States' uh, decision to withdraw. The only other thing that I would say uh, in response to Jamil's, I think, largely fair laydown is my argument is not, well, it's really hard to get treaties through. So therefore, let's just ignore the treaty clause of the U.S. Constitution and render it, declare it null and void. And from here on out, presidents can just do executive agreements. The reason that I offered that context is because knowing that we are not in a position as a country to ratify conventions, even relatively modest conventions like the Disabilities Convention or the Convention on the Law of the Sea, which would help us in a number of ways, uh, our businesses, um, our demarcation of mineral deposits and oil deposits and so forth. We can't even get those done. That, that doesn't mean, okay, ignore the, uh, this constitutional provision altogether. What it means is that presidents have to then say, well, I still have to be president. I still have to work with other countries and come up with diplomatic solutions to problems. So how do I do that, given that I'm not going to be in a position to get a duly ratified treaty? What are my constitutional powers to enter into those executive agreements where I'm not exceeding my authority? 
And my whole point about how uh, President Obama approached this deal, the kinds of commitments he could make, the waiver authority he could exercise, all of that was done against the shadow of the fact that he couldn't do a treaty. And so therefore, he had to limit himself to this joint comprehensive plan of action. Uh, And that's what he did. And I think that that will be true, not just of Democratic presidents going forward, but Republican presidents as well. And I don't think that's a good thing. I think the Senate should be much more engaged in thinking through how to provide advice and consent to treaties, how to build consensus around these issues. But that's going to require a number of senators deciding that they're not basically against any international agreement of any kind beyond these relatively ministerial type agreements around tax that I referred to and Jamil referred to. Until we can get there, until the Congress can step forward or the Senate can step forward, and actually engage in good faith on international diplomacy and deal making, I think we're just going to be in a circumstance where presidents are going to do the kind of thing that President Obama did. And you're likely to see a similar approach from President Trump and from any future presidents as well. This is not a good thing, but it is the world we live in. And as long as the Senate is, is operating according to a view that you know just treaties are bad, we don't like treaties. Uh, you know, presidents are going to have to come up with ways to solve diplomatic problems through some form of agreement. And so you'll see a proliferation of things. And it wasn't just the Iran deal. You had the Paris Climate Agreement. Similarly, was not submitted to the Congress because it just operated under existing presidential authority. And I think we'll see similar things like that in the future. And now for a brief break. The National Constitution Center is offering continuing legal education credits for Select America's town hall programs. You can get credit for in-person events in Philadelphia and on-demand courses online. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash CLE for more information. Many thanks. Jamil, do you agree that we're not in a good state of affairs? Jake has said that the Senate is not doing its duty, that presidents of both parties in the future will make international agreements by executive order, that they'll be reversed by their predecessors, and this will undermine the U.S.'s uh, credibility among our allies. Uh, Do you agree, and and what can we do about it? Well, I do agree with Jake, uh, certainly that we have a a real challenge in our country um, getting the two parties together. Uh, to work together uh, in a cooperative manner to effectuate the most uh, the interests of our of our nation, both in domestic affairs but also in international affairs. In particular, I'm deeply concerned about our uh, inability as as a as a country to come together in a bipartisan way to confront the obvious uh, Russian manipulation of our of our electoral system and our and our body politic. Um, but to, to to focus in particular on this question about treaties, you know, I just don't think it's fair. Uh, to suggest that President Obama couldn't have gotten a treaty through. In fact, uh, President Obama was able to get a treaty through uh, in the Senate, uh, the New START Treaty, um, uh, just, a, just a couple of years earlier, uh, maybe three years earlier, uh, four years earlier, in, um, uh, through the Senate. And he got it ratified uh, and submitted this, this arms control deal about nuclear arms, very similar to the Iran deal, uh, and was able to get, because he was able to cut a deal that, that uh, the American people and their elected representatives supported and was able to get a two-thirds vote. And it was a hard-fought vote. Uh, it took a lot of cajoling, uh, but ultimately uh, the Senate did uh, provide its advice and consent. The president was able to ratify that treaty. Now, 
unfortunately, that was not the case on these other trees that Jake uh, uh, agreements that are, or, or international compacts that Jake laid out uh, to include the Iran deal. The Iran deal did not have uh, bipartisan support in either house. It didn't have it in the Senate, certainly. Um, in fact, there were 58 votes to against the treaty itself. And so there was no way it was going to get to a thir- two-thirds margin on the merits itself. And so uh, I do I do share Jake's uh, frustration um, and concern uh, with our inability as, as, a commu- as a government to come together in a bipartisan way to address significant national security issues. I'm not sure that's the lesson on the Iran deal. Um, I do think that's the lesson today, and it's a concern today. Uh, but I don't think that's the thing to take away from the Iran deal. Um, you know, and I think at the end of the day, um, you know, where we ended up, you know, is, is something of a challenging situation because you have a scenario where the president, knowing he doesn't have political support, nonetheless entered into a very controversial deal and sought to maybe not make legal commitments on behalf of the United States. And that's a debatable question, too, because then the administration went to the U.N. and got a U.N. resolution, which in theory might be enforceable, at, you know, in, 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 the, in the political sense. In, in the international arena, um, you know, without, by the way, telling Congress it was intended to do that, that's itself troubling in itself, of itself. But put that to one side, um, the the fact that the president's making political commitments, uh, knowing that he doesn't have the support of the American people's elected representatives in either house, um, and then setting us up for a situation where uh, there's unhappiness in Congress, uh, there's unhappiness, uh, you know, uh, with with uh, with the next, with likely the next president, if it's not. A president of the same party who happens to agree with the current president, um, you know, it, 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 that's that's a problem. You shouldn't be entering into deals like that if you expect them to survive the test of time and are concerned that the that America's international credibility will be undermined um, going forward. Now, look, I, I I get that the president felt like you know he had to make a deal here um, and and felt like this was in 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 the national interest of the United States. I don't question the president's motives in the sense that he honestly believed this was the right deal for the country at this time. But at the same time, you can't question the motives of Congress that they didn't. Um, and that meant it wasn't going to be a treaty. Um, it couldn't be a treaty. Um, and that as a political commitment, it had a lot less sort of, you know, oomph behind it. And it's true. Yes, presidents can walk away from treaties. They just don't do it very often because it, there's, there's been a formal process and we've gotten buy-in uh, and, and substantial buy-in, which just didn't, didn't happen in this case. And so I think this is a special case. I hope that this is not the way... Uh, we go forward as a country in terms of doing major deals. Um, and I hope that we can get to a place, as Jake says, where we can get consensus on deals that the United States finds in its interest and can get to a two-thirds uh, ratification or, or advice and consent vote in the Senate. Great. Okay, thanks very much to both of you so far to this point for focusing on the legal and constitutional rather than the policy implications of the Iran deal and its withdrawal, as I requested in the spirit of the We the People podcast. But it would be a hugely wasted opportunity having uh, you on, Jake Sullivan, since you negotiated the deal, not to ask you the policy question. Uh, what do you think the effect of the withdrawal will be? And, and why was the withdrawal a, a, a bad idea? Well, I think the withdrawal was a bad idea because the agreement was working to keep Iran's nuclear program in a box, uh, to keep them from being able to move their capability forward and get to a bomb. And uh, that was the purpose of putting the sanctions in place, was to get them to the table to agree to a series of constraints that could be verified. That was the purpose of doing the deal, and that purpose was being effectuated. And by walking away from the agreement, in a way, what President Trump has done is given the 
Iranians the opportunity, if they choose to take it, to get out of the box we had put them in and to begin advancing their capability once again. And if they start advancing their capability, if they start moving down the road and get closer to being able to have the material necessary for a bomb, what then? Because at this point, negotiating a new nuclear deal with the Iranians does not seem like it's going to be very much in the cards. So it raises the probability that either the Iranians get the bomb at some point or that we end up having to use military force to stop them. This is the big challenge. And for me, the question that I keep coming back to is, what, what next? To what end? Why uh, has, what, what is the administration's thought process about what it will do now? And the best that I can divine, because when this question is posed to administration officials, they don't have a particularly good answer. Uh, essentially, they want to get back to sanctioning Iran more or less for the sake of sanctioning Iran, putting more pressure on them with the hope that maybe at some point it breaks the regime. And if it doesn't break the regime, at least it weakens and destabilizes it. And if it doesn't do that too much, maybe it'll at least deny them resources for use in regional activities and so on down the line. But effectively, they don't really have an answer to sanctions for what purpose. It's essentially sanctions for their own purpose. They're good in and of themselves because they put pressure on this other country. And for me, having given up the constraints we had on Iran and their nuclear program and not having a particular end game or objective in mind, this is a recipe for mistakes, for escalation, for uh, things happening not at times and places of our choosing. And I'm just very worried that, that Donald Trump was good at tearing the deal down, but neither he nor his team have been particularly good at building up a strategy to deal with Iran, its nuclear program, or its behavior in the region. That's, that's the core of my concern as we go forward. And, and in the meantime, the rest of the world is now waking up every morning worried more about Washington than they are about Tehran. We have divided the world on the question of Iran's nuclear program, where previously we had the world united behind us, and we had Iran in a box. And that disturbs me as well, because I think it will be very difficult for us to rebuild the international consensus that led to the very strong sanctions we put in place and that led to Iran agreeing to a whole series of constraints on their program. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Jamil, you have written pieces recently in The Wall Street Journal uh, saying to promote nonproliferation, kill the Iran deal now, and in U.S. News, how President Trump can forge a nuclear deal that actually works. So the obvious question why do you think it was a good idea to kill the Iran deal? And how can President Trump forge a nuclear deal that actually works? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we have to go back uh, to recent history to see why I think uh, that getting rid of the Iran deal now actually makes the most sense to get us to a better deal and why I'm skeptical of Jake's concern that this doesn't actually put us in a place to, a good, to get us to a good deal. Um, you know, Jake talks about the building of the, uh, the global coalition, the international consensus that got us to the deal. Uh, the real truth of the matter is that there was uh, not a global consensus in 2011-2012 when Congress sought to impose crushing sanctions on Iran, the so-called Central Bank of Iran sanctions uh, that prevented countries uh, from working with Iran's Central Bank um, uh, if they wanted to bank in the United States, subject to certain uh, exemptions if they reduced oil ex imports from Iran by a certain amount. Uh, it was those crushing sanctions imposed by Congress um, against, frankly, to be honest, a, a veto threat from the administration, uh, the veto that was eventually withdrawn because they saw a, a clear 
veto-proof majority about the House and the Senate, but a veto threat from the administration and huge hand-wringing for our European allies who said this would be a disaster if these secondary sanctions were implemented against them um, and they would not be able to, they would not come to the table and they would break from the United States and would break down the international uh, consensus on sanctions. But the reality was, was that those sanctions, the nature of those sanctions, harsh though they may have been, uh, put European nations to a choice. Either you bank with the United States or you deal with Iran. And the answer was bank with the United States, as it will be over the next few months. We will see, Just you just saw an article in the Washington Post a day or two ago by Karen DeYoung in, indicating very clearly that the Europeans realize they don't have a lot of choices here, that it's go along with the sanctions or go along with the sanctions, that, that, that trying to get out from the sanctions and not reducing oil exports to be exempt or to, uh, to deal with the Iran Central Bank is not a viable economic option. And as a result, just like they did in 2011, 2012, which got Jake to the table and got him negotiating their secretly in Oman with Iran, um, uh, we're going to be back in a position of maximum leverage. And so if you believe this was a bad deal, as I happen to, and as clearly the president does also, um, and that there is a good deal to be had, the only way to get to that good deal, that new deal, is to return to a place of maximum leverage. The only way to do that was to get out of this deal, reimpose those sanctions, those very aggressive CBI 2011-2012 congressionally imposed sanctions, um, and then negotiate for position of strength. Now, Jake makes a fair argument that the administration has not shown uh, a ability yet to do deals internationally. That being said, they have shown the ability to do diplomacy. They were able to uh, gather a group of nations to uh, boot out Russian diplomats, um, and they've been able to, albeit in a way that I think a lot of people wouldn't say was the most uh, diplomatic uh, way uh, to bring North Korea to the table. Now, we'll see what happens with that. We'll see if there's a deal in the offing there, an effective deal. Um, but at the end of the day, the president does pride himself on being the dealmaker in chief. That's his sort of go-to move. Um, and we'll see now, now that he's reimposed sanctions and gotten out of the deal and he says he wants a new deal. Um, so now his opportunity, he's now at maximum leverage uh, with those very same sanctions in place. Um, and we'll see if he can get a better deal out of Iran. Um, and I, I, I do think, I do take the administration at its word that what they want is not just sanctions for the purpose of sanctions, but sanctions uh, reimposed to get to a better deal. And so now we'll see whether that, in fact, is the case. Thanks so much for that. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this completely fascinating debate. We haven't yet talked about whether you think that the withdrawal from the Iran deal will affect negotiations for North Korea, but you can sum up that or any other thoughts in your closing statements. And I'll just phrase the broad question. Um, has President Trump's withdrawal from the Iran deal made us more or less safe? And the first closing argument is to Jake Sullivan. Well, thanks. Um, a couple of thoughts, starting with your question about what kind of impact the decision on the Iran deal will have on the North Korea uh, diplomacy. Contrary to a lot of my colleagues, I don't think it's going to have very much impact um, because I don't think Kim Jong-un has any intention of actually surrendering his nuclear weapons. He will make promises about the vague notion of denuclearization, but I don't think he actually intends to hand over the nukes. And as a result, he doesn't really care about whether America keeps his word or not, because he's not intending to do anything for which he needs America to keep its word. And therefore, I think the potential summit between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump will proceed largely unencumbered by what's going on with Iran right now. I obviously believe that the Iran uh, pulling out of the Iran deal makes the United States less safe because I both think it makes an Iranian bomb more likely and I think it makes war between the United States and Iran more likely. And I'd make a couple of comments about what Jamil said about sanctions. 
it's interesting in government where you stand really kind of turns to a certain extent on where you sit. Jamil was on the Hill. And so his story is about how it was Congress who produced the global campaign of sanctions. I was working in the State Department, flying around the world and meeting with all the countries that we were bringing into this coalition. So I think the administration had a lot to do with it. I think it was a team effort between Congress and the administration. And sanctions fundamentally are a combination, when they're effective, of coercion and cooperation. You have the hammer, as Jamil said, of denying uh, companies access to the U.S. financial system, but you also ask them to work with you, to do it in a way that is not fundamentally disruptive to them. And the minute that you start adopting Jamil's view, which is, no, don't work with these countries, just tell them. It's them or us. It's our way or the highway. Over time, what other countries will do is start insulating their banks and their uh, their companies and their private sector from U.S. sanctions. And I think the Chinese will start doing that now. The Russians will be doing that, other countries as well. I agree the Europeans are likely to largely comply in the near term, but not comply to anywhere near the extent that they did when we were working with them cooperatively. Back, the, the legislation required that they reduce their purchases by, say, 20% every six months. We got them to go to zero not because of the hammer, but because we had a common purpose. And the point is now they're going to drag their feet. They're going to do it as slowly as they can. They're going to try to work with Iran as much as they can. They just met with the Iranian foreign minister to try to do that. So I think Jamil's attitude, which is, forget the rest of the world, just tell them they got to do it and they're going to have to do it. In reality, that is not a recipe for a successful sanctions campaign. And if it's not, and if the sanctions are more leaky this time, it will be harder to get Iran back to the table for a better deal. Last point. Jamil talks about a better nuclear deal. The administration has made abundantly clear they are not interested in relaxing these sanctions strictly to get a good nuclear deal. They want everything. They want the nuclear deal. They want uh, Iran's behavior in the region to fundamentally change. And they question whether that can even happen if this regime is still in power. So the idea that the goal here is actually to get back to the table to do a new nuclear deal, that may be Jamil's desire, but I do not believe that that is the desire of the team that is actually working on Iran policy at the National Security Council or the State Department today. And that's very dangerous because it does put us on a path where the fundamental object of these sanctions is not a diplomatic outcome. It's ever escalating pressure with the goal of strangling Iran. Uh, and then all of the potential instability and, and Iranian responses that can flow from that. And that is why, at the end of the day, I think this was a mistake and why it renders the United States uh, less well off, less safe. And the same, in my view, despite the cheers from some of our allies and partners in the region, I think it makes the region more unstable and our allies and partners more unsafe as well. Many thanks for that. Jamil, the last word is to you. Uh, your final thoughts about whether the withdrawal from the Iran deal has made us more or less safe. Well, Jeff, uh, thanks to you uh, for hosting this and to the National Constitution Center for this uh, amazing uh, podcast series. I mean, to Jake for a, 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 a very fair and even-handed and spirited uh, dialogue uh, about this issue that he and I have debated many a time, including when the when the deal was being, was being negotiated uh, and since then. Um, and uh, you know, I, a few things to say. I think uh, you know to to address. I think the very the very interesting points that that, that Jake made. Um, you know, one. I think that 
when I talk about a nuclear deal, and I think when when most of the people that who who oppose the Iran nuclear deal talk about a nuclear deal, uh, we're talking about a, a nuclear deal that's much more comprehensive than what Jake refers to as a nuclear deal. Um, we're not just talking about uranium enrichment. Because that's one part of three legs of a nuclear tri a triad when it comes to developing a weapon. There's the there's the enrichment for the uranium or the development of plutonium, one. Two, there's the delivery capability, the ballistic missile delivery capability. On that score, uh, this deal agreed to by the Obama administration was a walk back of long saying U.S. policy on ballistic missiles um, and undermining of the prior U.N. Uh, mandate in that area. And then third, the development of a nuclear uh, weapons uh, warhead, a warhead capability, the actual device. Um, and on that front, uh, this deal bought Iran time and space uh, and gave them money to do that. Now, agreed, the deal says you can't do that. Uh, but of course, our inspections regime that we agreed to under it, particularly with respect to sites of prior military uh, dimensions or prior military aspects, uh, was so weak uh, as to uh, you know allow for a lot of cheating in that space, um, you know, where the Iranians go test their own soil and then or uh, collect the samples themselves and then hand it over to IEA, a drug, a drug testing regime that would make an, uh, a uh, Russian athlete proud. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so there's concerns with the deal itself. And then this larger issue of Iran's role in the region, I think, is part of the nuclear deal. Because at the end of the, de in the, end of the day, the reason people are concerned about Iran getting nuclear weapons is not just nonproliferation generally, but Iran's malign activities in the region and the way it behaves. And on that score, this deal has been a disaster. It doesn't cover that issue at all. Um, it, intentionally, as Jake points out, it was just a nuclear deal, as narrowly described. Uh, and of course, they become much more influential and much more aggressive. Uh, you see their activities in Syria and the hugely devastating effects that's had on the civilian population um, and on minority populations in that country. Um, and the refugee crisis it's created, the Iranian activities supporting the Syrian regime, and the undermining of our of our of our of our supported forces in that region. You see the damage Iran is causing in the conflict in Yemen with its support of the Houthi rebels, who are now launching uh, ballistic missiles. Iranian provided ballistic missiles uh, towards our ally Saudi Arabia at their capital Riyadh, um, and you see that happening throughout the region. You see their their influence in Iraq. Um, and, and, and this is a country, by the way, Iran, that supported the terrorist group Qatab Hezbollah that killed Americans during the, uh, during the uh, Iraq intervention. And so um, that's a concern, and that is part of what I think uh, those of us who oppose the nuclear deal um, a thought should be part of a nuclear deal and should be part of a nuclear deal going forward with uh, this new administration. Um, so, you know, I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, we're going to agree here to disagree on the merits of the deal and, and whether, and I, I do think that uh, we are uh, in the short term in a more in a less stable position. I agree with Jake on that um, because, of course, we're out of the deal and Iran could could make the next move. Although I don't think they will. I think what will ultimately happen is they'll come back to the table and we'll negotiate to a better deal um, that does include their malign activities. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we'll find out. I, I think Jake, by the way, is right also on North Korea that Kim Jong Un does not intend to actually denuclearize, and that as a result, this this deal has little impact on that, and that's unfortunate. Uh, you know, hope springs eternal. We'll see. But we have a long history here of a failed bipartisan uh, approach to North Korea of making deals and seeing them welched on almost the Lucy and a Charlie Brown uh, with the football move uh, <laughs> we've had with North Korea. And so I, I'm skeptical there, as Jake is. Um, but on the Iran front, I think short term, less stable, long term, a much better position because at the end of the day, this deal had so many flaws in it, had such short sunsets that at the end of the day, Iran was on the path to a nuclear weapon. They were going to 
be able to accelerate to it much faster towards the end of this deal in six, seven years. Um, and that, that to me is not a positive. And, and they were really able to really break out at any point in time if and when they made the decision to go to Obama. And so uh, I don't, I don't believe that this deal made us dramatically safer. And so the loss of it, perhaps marginally less stable, but not a huge, huge loss. And, and getting a better deal at the end of the day, I think, huge win if it, in fact, it happens. And we'll see if President Trump, you know, you know, he, like I said, thinks of himself as dealmaker in chief. We'll see if that's actually going to happen. Thank you so much, Jamil Jaffer and Jake Sullivan, for an extremely nuanced, vigorous, and above all, civil debate about the legal and political consequences of President Trump's withdrawal from the Iran deal. It's been an honor to have you both on We the People. Uh, Jamil, Jake, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Today's show was engineered by Greg Shegley and produced by Ugana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Ugana Etze. The National Constitution Center is offering continuing legal education credits for Select America's town hall programs. There's credit for in-person events and on-demand courses. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash CLE for more information. And dear We the People listeners, always remember, before you rise and before you slumber, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity, passion, engagement, and devotion to lifelong self-education that each of you are displaying by listening to these We the People podcasts. Please consider becoming a member to support our work. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.